Traveling the Vortex. Side trip. Star Trek 201. I'm Sean from Traveling the Vortex, the resident Trek geek and expert on uh, the Doctor Who podcast you're probably a little more familiar with. A long time ago, I won't say the rest of it, um, it was suggested by a couple of our listeners that I kind of walk them through what made Star Trek so great. And the result was Star Trek 101, where I took a look at the original series. That was followed by Star Trek 102, where I took a look at the original series movies. About five years have gone by in between uh, in between bouts, and I thought maybe it's time now to uh, to revisit these and continue on with Star Trek 201, which will be my look into Star Trek: The Next Generation. Now, unlike the original series, Star Trek: The Next Generation had a seven-year time frame to run. And uh, it's just simply too big for me to cover in a half-hour side trip. So I will be uh, tackling these season by season, partly because it's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and I felt it was definitely time to dust this idea off, partly because Mel and I have been going back through, and we finally got to our next-gen rewatch, and we've just rewatched these recently, uh, within the last month or so. And so they're all very fresh in my mind, and I thought, well, now's the perfect opportunity to do so. So some uh, quick background information. Um, Star Trek The Next Generation debuted in 1987, um, coming off the heels of the very successful Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home in Theaters. That's the one with the whales. Um, Paramount was sitting on uh, quite the cash cow, and they knew it. And they really, as with most things, the decisions were financially obligated. They wanted more money. Um, There was talk afoot at the studio about making another series or bringing it back to television. But everyone was a little concerned about the aging actors and the skyrocketing salaries, which, you know, for television series are um, are valid concerns, quite honestly. Um, Roddenberry had been briefly approached about it and basically said no way he wouldn't do it. Uh, He had no interest in going back into the grind uh, of day-to-day television, uh, especially considering everything that happened to him during the 60s on the television show. And uh, Paramount was pretty adamant that they didn't want to try and do it without him because they, they kind of knew the fans would just uh, not have any of it. Eventually, they wore him down and convinced him that they were going to do it without a network. Um, one of the big problems, obviously, that Star Trek had was NBC. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to have that. You won't have any, any network interference because we're going to go directly into syndication. Syndication basically means that normally you have a production company, say Paramount in this case, who makes the TV show. They actually pay for it, and then they sell the episodes to a network. The network then has to turn around and resell, if you will, the airtime for those episodes. Um, Consequently, the network has a pretty big strong arm in how the show proceeds because it's, you know, representing their brand, it's representing their airtime, it's representing how much money they can get from their advertisements that uh, they're going to be selling those spots for. And uh, so if you do something they don't like, they can refuse to purchase the episode, which then puts the production company in a lot of risk because, well, they're going to pay for it. So, um, But we won't have any of that, they said, and Roddenberry eventually agreed. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation uh, was never really envisioned to be a retread of the original series. Um, As Roddenberry himself commented, why bother doing something that's already been done? 
he wanted to do new characters. He wanted to do something that had not been done before um, with, with these character, uh, with this crew, with uh, you know a new ship. Um, I think it was pretty obvious that it still needed to be called Enterprise from the get-go. But um, you know, he even commented, "We may not have a Vulcan on the ship," and lo and behold, they really didn't—at least not as one of the main characters. Um, the pilot, which was commissioned, Encounter at Far Point, was originally going to be a one-hour uh, premiere that was very uh, strictly adamant from, from, from Gene Roddenberry. Paramount wanted a two-hour premiere, and he, he really didn't want to do it. He thought the two hours was pushing the format into uh, areas that, you know, well, we've already done this. Uh, we do movies. But uh, they wanted something big and splashy. And I'm going to take just a moment to talk about Encounter at Far Point. Encounter at Far Point is simultaneously one of the best pilots for a television series ever made and one of the worst. It's a really interesting dichotomy of entertainment. And here's my rationale for that. When you watch Encounter at Farpoint, it is very methodical. It's very economical in a way. We get a lot of scenes that lay out the characters, that describe who they are, we get a lot of scenes of the ship and its abilities and what it can do, and it just pretty much sets the tone for everything that will follow. Unfortunately, it sets that tone so dryly and so clinically, um, it feels almost like a paint-by-numbers episode that um, there's not a whole lot of enjoyment to be gotten out of it. I think you can sit and kind of absorb it without really enjoying it. Um and it's kind of a shame because I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of good work, a lot of hard work that went into making this pilot. But um, as with Star Trek uh, in general, sometimes the pilots just don't work as well as we think they will. Um, it's also, again, interesting to note, if you remember my conversation from last time with Star Trek 102, that Star Trek The Motion Picture um, was kind of a dry run for Star Trek The Next Generation. There's a lot of very similar themes, a lot of very similar emotions, a lot of very similar, uh, similar tonal palettes, uh, even even down to the colors of the ship being a very kind of a, a neutral um, that are in use now. And so Roddenberry went back to that well to make sure that he had, you know, ultimately what he was trying to get after the first time uh, in Star Trek The Motion Picture. The first officer is Commander William Decker. In The Next Generation, it's Commander William Riker. Uh, Decker had a, uh, a liaison, a uh, former affair, love uh, of his life with uh, the ship's counselor, Lieutenant Ilya, who was an empath, or well, she was a navigator in the uh, in the motion picture. Uh, Riker had a, a previous relationship with the show's counselor, Deanna Troy, who was an empath. Um, the design of the ship, the octagonal corridors, the look of the engineering, even the uniforms kind of going back to jumpsuits, is uh, is very similar. So it's interesting to see that, uh, you know, 20 years later, they tried, or seven, I guess 10 years later, they did it again and got exactly what they needed. Star Trek The Next Generation has a different feel than Star Trek. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's still Star Trek, but it's not the swashbuckling adventure some 60s era Star Trek that uh, the original series is. It's grown up a bit. It's um, You have to also keep in mind in a way that the, the time period in which these were manufactured. Star Trek, as much as I love it, is very much a product of the 60s. Star Trek The Next Generation is very much a product of the late 80s, early 90s. Um, 
there's different sensibilities and different storytelling techniques. And one of the ones that, uh, that came up recently that we, we actually discussed um, amongst us as a family after watching the episode, um, it had a, a kind of a similar problem. It wasn't a, an exact remake of an original series episode. Um, and of course, now that I've started the story, I for the life of me cannot remember which one it was. But uh, it had a similar problem. And um, we we spent, I don't know, probably a good half hour discussing the various pros and cons of how that particular issue was handled within the confines of the show and maybe what should have been done differently. It was a prime directive problem, I can tell you that. Um, and uh, the, the crew's um, response and reactions to it uh, versus, you know, what Kirk would have done versus what even uh, in the, the new series, like or the new movies, the Kelvin timeline with... Uh, into darkness, what Kirk does uh, in that particular instance, versus what Picard and company do here in uh, in the next gen time frame. So, it's it's really kind of interesting. It's, I think it's a very thought provoking show, but not in a bad way. There's still enough fisticuffs and phaser fights for uh, you know for everybody to to get behind and get something to enjoy. But it does move at a different speed. In a way, it's a little bit like classic and new Who. It just moves at a different pace, and so you kind of have to be aware of that um, going into it. Um, the first season of Next Gen is, what's a good word, stodgy, maybe? Um, no, that's not a good word for it. Don't get me wrong, it's entertaining. It's worth your time. But the show's not quite fully cooked yet. Most of the pieces are there. Most of the characterization is to come. So a lot of times you'll have a, a character maybe doing something that's not quite right. Um, they really didn't have much for Worf's, Worf. Worf? Didn't really have much for Worf to do in the first season. Um, despite the big shocking announcement that we're going to have a Klingon on the bridge. Um, because we're, we're now allies with the Klingon Empire. Putting a Klingon on the bridge took a couple of years for them to really start to delve into the nuances and the mysteries of the race and his, uh, his, his species and uh, what Klingons are all about and how this particular Klingon would go about integrating himself into Federation society. Um, so it's a, little, it's a little weird because it almost feels like stunt casting. It feels like, hey, look, here's a Klingon, but nothing is done with him. Um, Tashi Yar, the original security chief, played by Denise Crosby. Um, Tasha is uh, an interesting character. Denise is a very nice woman. I've met her, and, and she's an absolute joy. I think all the way around, Tasha was kind of a misstep. I, I, I didn't like her character, and I didn't like Crosby's portrayal of her character. Um, and it was difficult at best um in, in a way to deal with some of her episodes uh and, and some of the uh, scenarios she makes the best of it but even even crosby herself said that you know she realized she was going to be in this for the long haul standing on the bridge saying hailing frequencies open hailing frequencies closed uh which is her reason for leaving um there's some internet scuttlebutt that that's not the way that went down but i believe those are just rumors um I won't go into the whys. You can look that up yourself if you're really interested. So she does wind up leaving toward the end of the first season. Um, Jordy is uh, wearing a red shirt. He's not chief engineer. In fact, we get a revolving door of chief engineers. I'm not quite sure why. It's, uh, it feels very unsettled. Like you know, You're really not sure was this something they purposely meant to do 
knowing that we we're going to promote Jordy to engineer later, or uh, if they just hadn't settled on that position because they didn't think it was important the way that Scotty was important. Um, and then there's data. You know, data obviously is uh, you know the android character of the group, and um, he was meant to be the Mister Spock of uh, of the next generation. He was meant to be the emotionalist character trying to find his humanity. And um, Brent Spiner plays him with wonderful aplomb. He is one of the best things about the show. Patrick Stewart, of course, is wonderful. Jonathan Riggs, the entire cast is uh, is just very well put together and conceived. And one of the few times where they can catch lightning in a bottle. Next Gen works. It's not Star Trek. But it is Star Trek. It holds true to the core values of the show, while very much giving us a different look, a different atmosphere, a different attitude of people that are put in similar situations. And, and that's one of the best things about it. It is, uh, now I say similar situations, there are a handful of episodes that are eh, pretty much direct ripoffs of episodes that were done. I, I, I suppose homage is the best way to put it. Um, I'm looking at you, uh, the naked now where they crew gets drunk. It's like, oh, we've already done this. But um, I think th for the most part, they're done tongue-planted-in-cheek, and they're meant to be uh, in enjoyable for what they are. So uh, the first season's not horrible. I, uh, I I found myself coming away from it with the rewatch that, uh, you know, I actually liked it better than I remembered, that there were episodes that I went into kind of going, you know, I don't remember this one at all. And then as it started to unfold, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I remember this one. But yet I was still engaged and surprised by it. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a, a really remarkable thing because there's a lot of season one episodes. You know, again, this came out in 87 and then uh, eventually showed up on DVD. I want to say sometime around 1995 was when those sets started to come out and, and be made available. Now it was available in reruns, uh, you know, obviously because of the wonders of syndication. But uh, for me, owning a copy, it was probably uh, 95 before I owned some of these episodes. And I had never gone back and completely rewatched them from start to finish. I would pick one episode here or one episode there. And very rarely did those episodes come from the first season. So this is my first time since 87 going back and really devoting the time to them. And they stand up, which was uh, something that I thought was um, surprising and uh, quite enjoyable to see that uh, they're still... Uh, they're still as engaging as they were. With um, the original series, the Star Trek 101, I also offered up my picks for the uh, the, the top ten episodes of the series, uh, ones that um, you know maybe a new view, a new viewer of Star Trek the next uh, Star Trek would be interested in. I don't think I can do that uh, with Next Gen simply because seven seasons, ten episodes doesn't seem fair. But nor do I want to try and pick out ten episodes from season one because that's just uh, insane. So I've narrowed it down to five. Um, and these are the five episodes that are probably my favorites out of season one. These are f I've, tr I've tried to balance this a little bit with five episodes you really ought to watch, as well as five that happen to be among my favorites. So you get a little bit of both. Um, and I'll work backwards so that, uh, again, there's a little bit of suspense, and maybe some fans will agree with me, and maybe some of them won't. It's the glory of uh, fan lists, right? Uh, so coming in at number five, The Battle is an episode where the Ferengi 
bring Picard's old starship, the Stargazer. They have found it a derelict wreck, and they contact the Enterprise and bring it to him and uh, basically say, hey, look what we found. And Picard's quite surprised and astonished that the Stargazer still exists. Through the backstory, we learn that uh, it was nearly destroyed, thought destroyed, in what is known as the Battle of Maxima, or Maxia, the Battle of Maxia. And uh, Picard uh, and uh, some of his crew escaped, and many did not. Uh, and it was a battle with the Ferengi. Uh, now, the Ferengi were meant to be kind of the big bads for the new show. They were really meant to be um, this generation. I mean, we can't fight the Klingons anymore because, obviously, you know, we've made peace with them. And there was a Romulan plot uh, set up that uh, they wanted the Romulans to be involved. And they are. But uh, sparingly, the Romulans have kind of been on hiatus for the last uh, 70 years and very reclusive. And so we're slowly going to get introduced to them as the series progresses. But the Ferengi were meant to be the come out of the gate bad guys. Um, they're very materialistic. They're very greedy. Um, and unfortunately, they just didn't work on Next Gen. They, uh, they came across rather comical. They were not a threat. They were not scary. They were uh, technologically very much an equal match, if not superior, to the Enterprise. But um, for some reason, it just never gelled. And their first appearance is laughable. This is their second appearance, and it's done much better. Um, the Ferengi captain is, uh, we learned, got basically this is all a personal vendetta against Picard, who he calls the hero of Maxia. And he has placed a thought control device on the ship that is going to force Picard to reenact that battle uh, against his will. But he will be duped into doing it and uh, attack the Enterprise instead. It's a very well done episode. It has a lot of throwbacks to the original series, specifically the movie eras with uh, the styling of the ship, uh, the Stargazer Bridge. And it's just, uh, it's got a phenomenal performance by Patrick Stewart. It's a very, very good, very well done episode. And uh, in a lot of ways kind of redeems at least partially those aspects of the Ferengi that I think were very much lacking in their first appearance. Coming in at number four for me on this list of episodes you probably should see, The Neutral Zone. Now, The Neutral Zone is an interesting one. Uh, it's uh, one of those that has very firmly established what would become the next-gen template. And the next-gen template, if you look at most of the stories throughout Next Generation, there are two plots. There's an A plot and a B plot. And while this is going on, this is also going on. And they cut back and forth between the two plots. You get your five commercial breaks and the show's over. Both of them usually wind up resolving or at least have a hand in. Uh, frequently, uh, the B plot will wind up being the actual resolution for the A plot or vice versa. Um the neutral zone is the uh, Enterprise picks up a uh, probe that was launched from Earth many, 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 many years ago uh, with uh, cryogenic sleepers on it. And some of you are going, oh, my God, they did con. No, they didn't do con. These were people who were frozen uh, and basically waiting for a cure for whatever ailment or disease they had launched into space and uh, kind of forgotten about. They, they took a Buck Rogers trajectory and woke up 300 years later when the Enterprise rescued them, and uh, their reintegration into society. And you kind of get a couple of different looks. There is a, a cowboy, uh, he's a country and western singer who apparently was a big deal at the time that he went under. 
and his very good-natured, lackadaisical, easygoing attitude is, you know, everything's going to be okay. There is an investment banker who doesn't understand that this is the 24th century and that money has pretty much been abolished and that his lawyers don't exist and uh, his empire is gone and everybody who would care about such a thing has evolved beyond that. And then you get the, uh, the, the, the mom who uh, was frozen out of some, not something she asked for, but out of some strange dedication that her husband had to her. Uh, in order to see her survive uh, beyond him and uh, is just kind of struggling to to reconnect with anybody and uh, there, there's some uh, it sounds a little corny but I, for me it's it's got some really nice uh, some really nice parallels there's something to identify with these people and and uh, they get to be kind of our our eyes and ears into this 24th century and how we would maybe react to it the a plot deals with uh, uh, Federation outposts along the neutral zone that have disappeared. And uh, every time we come to one, we find they've just basically been wiped off the face of the planet. And it's strongly suspected that the Romulans are involved in that. Uh, so there's the, 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 the meat of the story uh, is the, the final reveal of the, uh, the Romulan threat. And it comes in the last episode of the season. So that's uh, uh, something that's a little different. Number three on my uh, my top list for this season, Justice. Now, if you've seen Next Generation, this is uh, fondly remembered as the one where nobody wore any clothes. <laughs> uh, the Enterprise encounters a, a, a very uh, innocent, childlike almost race uh, on a garden planet. It's pretty much Eden. It's a paradise. Everything is wonderful and lovely and... Uh, uh, they have no, very few inhibitions, and everything is um, very sensual and, uh, and, and innocent. Until, uh, in a, what appears to be an innocent game of catch, Wesley Crusher winds up, uh, well, he, he, he falls on top of a flower and crushes it to bejesus. But unfortunately, it's in a designated white zone, which means the penalty is death. Um, they have very absolute rules on this planet, and that's how they've managed to keep the peace without a, a, a big judicial system and laws and, and everything. They, they, the laws are very set, and the laws are handed down to them by God, or at least what they perceive to be God. It's actually an entity in orbit over the, uh, over the planet. And um, while the story can be a little cornball, I think the themes are fantastic. The idea of uh, um, a superior power watching over its, its progeny and attacking the Enterprise and trying to warn them away from it because it doesn't want them to kind of ruin the experiment. And also the idea that, uh, you know, one of these people winds up going up to the ship and, and, and seeing God uh, and what that does to them. And then the whole, uh, you know... Is this a fair ruling? Is this a fair law when you have something that's set in absolute terms? Don't do this or else. And it doesn't matter what this is. It doesn't matter the severity of it. It doesn't matter, you know, they, they would have the same punishment for murder as they do crushing a flower. Uh, is that fair? And then on top of all that, there's the prime directive to deal with. Um, do we allow Wesley to be eliminated? Uh, you know, uh, or do we save him and, and violate the Prime Directive? It's our most important rule uh, for the Federation and for Starfleet. I think these were wonderful, uh, wonderful themes. And uh, as a young man in 1987, the fact that they didn't wear any clothes was kind of a, an added bonus.
Not going to lie. Number two, conspiracy. Oh, conspiracy. Why, oh, why, oh, why? <laughs> so um, Picard gets a, a message from a couple of other friends, Starfleet uh, captains of other vessels, and he has a clandestine meeting out on the Outer Rim that they talk him into coming to and basically give him uh, a bunch of stories about strange orders being passed down from Starfleet and contradictory terms and the things that shouldn't be happening are happening. And has any, has he noticed anything strange? And it's apparently been going on for months. Picard thinks that, what the, you know, you guys are nuts. He has data to look into it and data can corroborate the story. He finds that there have been some very odd things happening at, uh, at Starfleet command and that, um, perhaps something is afoot shortly after that. It's, uh, one of the captains who warned him his uh, entire starship explodes and winds up destroyed. Picard, resolving to get to the bottom of this, flies home to Earth to find out what is going on. Now, I'm going to sound the spoiler warning here, even though normally I wouldn't give away the ending of this, but this is the tragedy of conspiracy. So, spoilers if you haven't seen it. I'm going to spoil the ending of this one. They arrive on Earth and discover that much of Starfleet's high command has been infected with an intelligent insect parasite that is living within them and it has taken them over via mind control and forcing them to shuffle these ships around and make these erratic uh, uh, decisions in order to cement their hold and pave the way for the eventual invasion force. Now, it won't be an invasion force of, like, actual, uh, you know, War of the Worlds laser guns and spaceships, but it will be just this mass migration of insects that will come in and not be stopped, and they will consume and take over all of these other mines. Uh, and it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying the idea of it, the concept, the way it's portrayed, the music, the direction, everything about this episode is fantastic. And uh, it ends with Picard and company saving the day and destroying the, the mother uh, insect and, uh, you know, basically wiping out the rest of the brood because of the destruction of the, uh, the, the leader. And at the very last, one of the last scenes is... Uh, um, they send a signal into space right as the destruction, right as they're destroyed. And the last scene is on the Enterprise, and Picard gets word that this signal that was sent, they can't decipher it, but it was beamed into a deep, in deep space into a section of the galaxy that has remained unexplored. And the final shot is the Enterprise against the star background, heading off to whatever their next uh, uh, adventure is going to be, and just this beep, 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 floating off into the ether. It is bone-chilling because you know that this is just the setup for something greater. The tragedy of conspiracy is they never came back to the story. In all of the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, in Deep Space Nine, in Voyager, in all of the books, in all of the ancillary materials, that plot thread never once gets picked up again. 
and I bang my head against the wall. It keeps me awake at night going, why didn't you do something else with this? It's absolutely maddening. It is a perfect episode, and it's so amazing and so great and so Star Trek. And then we never get a sequel. And so deserving of one. Oh, the tragedy of conspiracy. But believe it or not, that's my number two pick. Number one, and I think most fans would agree with this, The Big Goodbye. The Big Goodbye was the holodeck episode. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, the holodeck is the uh, recreation area on the ship. Basically, it's a big room with some uh, yellow lines painted on the walls, and uh, the ship is programmed through their uh, holographic library to make the room into anything you need. You want a restaurant on the beach? We got that. You want to stand on a fragment of asteroid and stare into deep space? We got that. You want a uh, a, a, a junket uh, from uh, the Chinese Sea at the turn of the century in 1899 on New Year's Eve with fireworks? Yeah, we got that. It, it can literally be programmed for anything. Picard's particular... Um, poison, if you will, is uh, a series of novels, Dixon Hill, who is a hard-boiled film noir detective story. And uh, the holodeck is programmed with all of these stories, and he enters into uh, San Francisco uh, and uh, basically gets to play out a very hard-boiled film noir. Uh, and it's uh, equal parts, the Maltese Falcon and um, it, it's it's beyond wonderful. It won both a Hugo and a Nebula uh, for outstanding uh, science fiction, uh, and it's well-deserved. Because in addition to being fun and cool and, uh, you know, hey, look what they did here, and it's an excuse for them to play dress-up uh, and do a period piece without time travel, which is kind of a, a nifty concept in and of itself. Um, it also deals with a little weightier things when one of the holodeck characters, you know, it, they're basically told you are a holodeck creation. And one of them asks, will my family still be waiting for me when you leave? And suddenly you began to question whether or not this is a good technology because we can create these beings basically out of thin air. And it's a hologram. It's a hologram with a force field that feels solid. So when you look at them and touch them, you feel a human being and you have this conversation with a human being and yet it's all programming. But they can't leave the room because it, they're an image. But are they aware that they're an image? Well, this particular one became aware that he was an image and then began to question things. And that to me is the best science fiction. That is when, when, when sci-fi and Star Trek in particular are at their best, when they ask those kinds of questions that leave you going, hmm, and you have 30-minute discussions with the family afterward. Uh, the Big Goodbye is a lot of fun, and um, it almost, almost could be one of those two-parters that it feels like, for as good as it is, maybe they didn't quite get enough in, that they could have had a little bit more play time with it. But, um, you know, on the other hand, it's also pretty perfect. Um, for season one of Star Trek The Next Generation, there um, there aren't necessarily many standouts. I kind of had a problem, or, or a ch it was a challenge, to really put together a top five. Now, I would give honorable mentions, uh, since it's not just a favorites list, but ones that you should watch. Uh, uh, the Arsenal of Freedom is a pretty solid one uh, about a planet that uh, needs to be quarantined because um, they, they've got these super weapons that will kill you. <laughs> 
Um, I think uh, where no man's gone, where no one has gone before, where uh, the, the ship uh, goes through uh, an interesting engine experiment that catapults them to the farthest reaches of unknown space into a realm where thought prevails is where you're going. And the aforementioned encounter at Farpoint. Uh, obviously, you know, you kind of need to start at the beginning if this is a series that you're interested in just so that you can kind of get a handle on it despite the clunky clinical nature that uh, Encounter at Farpoint possesses itself. Um, it also, uh, Encounter at Farpoint also sets up Q, uh, who in my mind is kind of the big ranging villain of the, of the piece. Uh, wonderfully played by John Delancey. And... Um, the characterization of Q and the way Delancey plays him is very much worth sitting through some of the cringeworthy 80s sci-fi TV setup. Um, but they get there. Um, so yeah, uh, like I said, next the season one, um, it was a bit of a struggle to come up with five uh, outstanding episodes but the ones that are outstanding, I think, are very, very outstanding. Um, and I think Phantom would agree with that, that you know, there's a handful of nuggets that are just really, really good. The majority of them are, are, are decent enough to watch. There's a couple of stinkers in there, but not... Uh, I won't talk about Skin of Evil. Um, but, what, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not uh, gouge your eyeballs out bad television. Even when it's bad, it's still Star Trek. So that is uh, definitely something to contend with. Um, that's going to end it. That's going to wrap it up for me, uh, for, for Star Trek 201, uh, in this look at season one, uh, I will come back and give you another side trip with my thoughts on season two, once Mel and I have finished it, and it's a little fresher in my mind, and, uh, I look forward to working my way through these and kind of delivering a little more, uh, a little more Star Trek, a little more bang for your buck, as it were. Uh, as always, thank you so much to everybody for listening and for supporting our podcast. If uh, you are not a regular listener to our Doctor Who podcast, Traveling the Vortex, we would very much like you to be. Uh, the regular podcast is Doctor Who in Nature, and uh, we tend to tangent a little bit, but we've reined it in, I think, quite a bit since then, uh, at least since the early days. Uh, you can find that at TravelingTheVortex.com. And, of course, we're on all the forms of social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, we have a Goodreads book club. Thank you so much to the ladies for administering that. Uh, and um, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of different avenues out there, YouTube channel, uh, that you can consume stuff we put out. Um, if you really, really enjoyed this, um, you can uh, support us on Patreon. Those are uh, donations are always welcome and go right back into our podcast. And if you are currently a Patreon supporter, we cannot thank you enough. Um, because it it it, uh, it really means something to know that people will sit there and listen to me talk. If you are so inclined, you can send feedback either through uh, the Traveling the Vortex page, which is uh, feedback at travelingthevortex.com, or you can send it to me directly. I am Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at travelingthevortex.com. You can also reach me on Twitter, where I am at Vortex Sean. I'm happy to discuss anything that you would like. Uh, in regards to uh, what we've uh, covered here today. That's going to wrap it up uh, here. Again, this is Sean from Traveling the Vortex. Thanking you very much and signing off for this side trip. Bye.